This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau with another installment of our 2020 candidate series. This time we're talking to Montana Governor Steve Bullock. He's someone you won't be seeing on the debate stage this week because he didn't qualify in time for the first debate. Uh, but he's about one month into his campaign and we wanted to give him a chance to talk about his ideas, his policies, his views on politics. So we had him by the office last week in Los Angeles. We talked about what a Democrat from Montana which is a state that Trump won in 2016, can bring to the race. We talked about getting dark money out of politics, his ideas around making college and healthcare more affordable, foreign policy, and why politics, as usual, won't fix climate change. Here's the conversation. Governor Bullock, welcome to Pod Save America. It's good to have you here. John, it's great to be here, for sure. Um, I'll start with a simple question. Uh, in 2020, you'll have served two terms of, uh, for Governor of Montana. You could go into the private sector. You could retire. You could possibly be the next senator for Montana. Why do you want to be president of the United States right now? Yeah, and I want to be president of the United States because I think this is a dangerous time in this 243-year experiment called representative democracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have young kids. I see us more divided as a nation than ever before. Certainly not in my lifetime. And I ended up running for governor. I was attorney general for that, a job I loved, mm-hmm. um, but ran for governor because it really was, what am I handing off to my kids? And I think it's even that much more important today. What got you into politics in the first place? What made you run for AG? Well, it's sort of a twisted. So I actually went to uh, college down here, mm-hmm. small College called, Claremont McKenna. Yeah. Right? yeah. Went sight unseen. The idea of family visits or college visits was beyond my family's financial means. Mm-hmm. Worked my way through college. I borrowed my way through uh, law school at Columbia and had this idea that I was going to stay in New York, pay off what would be $175,000 in loans um, today, and then maybe move home. But my father and my parents had divorced in grade school, got stage four lung cancer. So Decided, you know, if I was ever going to get everything right from that, time to move home. Yeah. The only place that I could work in Montana with a debt load that big was in public service because then Columbia would help pay my loan. So I started in a cubicle in the attorney general's office. Yeah. Only way that I got an actual office was my voice was so loud. That, you know, <laughs> everybody was saying, we got to get him out of there. Um, and I'll never forget, so I was in federal court on a case uh, – 
James Watt had this group uh, that was suing to get rid of our stream access laws. And we have some of the best stream access laws in the country. And I'm like, two years out of law school, my name's Steve Bullock. Uh, I represent the people of Montana. These streams and rivers belong to all of us, no matter how wealthy we are. I'm like, this attorney general stuff's the coolest job in the world. So I ran for it. Uh And I'm not sure my whole family even voted for me. I got killed. What year was this? Uh, this would have been in 2000. Okay, so that was the first time you were Yeah, and um, decided, oh, I will never want to do that again. Um, went on to practice both, some in private practice, I was union side labor lawyer for a little while, did a minimum wage campaign. As we got closer to the 2008 election, I was like, but I really loved doing that when I worked in the attorney general's office. Yeah. So I decided to run for it. Uh, wasn't a favorite. I was in a three-way primary, and somehow it worked out. Um, so you've talked about how you're the only candidate in the race who's won a Trump state. Um, but right now, like the top five polling Democrats, all of whom won in pretty blue areas, are still, they have about 70% of the vote between all of them. Sure. So how do you make the case to primary voters that you know, a candidate who has won in a Trump state has experience that's more valuable and even necessary than the, you know, the top five or six candidates now. No, you bet. And only got into this about a month ago. Mm-hmm. My legislature was still uh, going on, so had a lot to do. If, in some ways, we look at it like, and I get the excitement and the need to get on to going against Trump, but you know, four years ago, I think Ben Carson was polling number one. I <laughs> so I think that. that there's some time along the way. Yeah. No, I think I make the case that, as you note, um, was the only one to win a reelect in a statewide race with Trump on the ballot. He took Montana by 20. I won by four. 25, 30 percent of my voters voted for Donald Trump. If we can't bring back both some of the places that we lost in 16, in addition, turn out our base, this guy could well win. But more than that, too, that like there is a hunger to get things done that impact real people's lives. And being a governor and a governor of a state that at its best, my legislature's been about 60% Republican, we've been able to get progressive things done. Uh, from healthcare to kicking dark money out of our elections to high-risk medical pools to investments in education. To, and I've done more on dark money than anybody else. So I think how you break through at the end of the day when people look at all of this is that we've got to beat Donald Trump, but we also have, have to make sure the government can work. Yeah. And so many of the issues that we'll be hearing about through uh, this primary – to me, it's been more than speeches. It's been actual having to get things done on the ground that impacts people's lives. Um, so what, uh, what are we missing f- about these Montana Republicans you're working for, you're working with in the state legislature <laughs> that are, that's so different than the Republicans that, you know, uh, we all know in, in D.C.? What, yeah. what's, what's the secret there to get yeah. stuff done? With yeah, them? certainly I think D.C. could learn a lot from Montana. I'm not going to s- say that it would be easy. Yeah. Um, because I also have more vetoes than any governor in the history. Right, you right. Know, that, that I think the way that I've had some successes there in governing are twofold. One of which is, sure, I try to find common ground. Mm-hmm. I work with individuals. But I also will then go to their districts and try to say, you know, most people's lives, I hate to tell you this, 
are even too busy with real life to listen to Pod Save America. Right? I never you know. know. <laughs> Believe me, we know. We're trying most, to reach all those people. Yeah, and most people don't live for politics, yeah. but they want a safe community, a decent job, a roof over their head, good public schools, clean air and clean water, the belief you can do better for your kids and grandkids than yourself. So I think how I've been able to have success is, is certainly showing up, listening, trying to engage folks along the way, going to their districts. And, and what do you sh- say when you show up? Because I feel like well, it is a great argument for Democrats that we've you know, we got to compete everywhere if we're going to win everywhere. I think everyone, and you know, pundits and everyone else yeah. are always looking for, what's the secret yeah. message that really breaks through to these voters? Well, well, and two different things. I'll give you an example of how I've showed up when it comes to trying to govern, mm-hmm. and then also to yours, what do we say to these voters along the way? 2015 is when I was trying to get Medicaid expansion through. Right. Like, this was the heart of anti-Obamacare time. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I go to this town called Shoto. It's population 1,700 on the Rocky Mountain front. Literally everyone in town knew why I was coming because the Koch brothers were nice enough to send a picture of me and Barack Obama saying, Bullock and Obama are coming to destroy your health care system. Very subtle message. Yeah. I showed up, and everybody in town got that flyer. So I showed up, and instead of just telling them what they need, I listened. First person that spoke was hospital administrator. So 43% of the people that walk through those doors don't have health insurance. A couple speakers down, and yeah, some people yelled and said, oh, Bullock and Obama are horrible, but was uh, the chair of the county commission. And the chair of the county commission wasn't even showed out. He was from Bynum. It's a suburb, population 50. It's a rancher. You know, he goes, I was born in a this suburb. A suburb or 50. That's <laughs> yeah. funny. <laughs> and he said, I was born in this hospital. This hospital saved my life a couple of years ago when I had a heart attack. If we lose this hospital, we've lost this town. And I think them telling me what they needed more than me telling them that I had all the answers. That's what gave that Republican legislator the courage to defy the Koch brothers, defy party leadership when really what, you know, every single vote mattered. And as a result, we haven't lost a rural hospital. Now, when we go to places, too, that, you know, we got to recognize, right, that when I was growing up in the early 70s, 90% of 30-year-olds doing better than their parents were at age 30. Today, it's only half. Or that in real terms, in the last 40 years, people haven't had a pay increase. Right. So part of it is saying, you know, this isn't working out too well. This economy is not working out too well. And it's Democrats that have traditionally fought for your economic interests, your health care interests, your education interests. And they look to D.C., and it's not working either. Yeah. So a broken economy and a broken political system, if we're not showing up and telling them, here's how we will work in partnership to make your life better, I think we're missing something. So there's a study last month out of the uh, University of Iowa that said most of the voters in that state that switched from uh, Republican to Democrat in 2016, I'm sorry, Democrat to Republican in 2016, who voted for Donald Trump, did not do so because of economic distress, but because of nativist appeals from Donald Trump, and that your proclivity to change from Democrat to Republican in 2016 was was much more likely if you responded to the nativist appeals. Um, what do you, and, and there's been a whole bunch of studies like this, right? Because look, I'm, I'm someone who thought worked for Barack Obama, and I think, oh, it's it's always economics. Dem- Democrat needs an e- Democrats need an economic message that's more populist, and then we can break through. And then you see all these studies, and you're like, 
Ugh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you buy those studies? Well, I do in as much as, yeah, a third of the counties went Obama, Obama, Trump right. in Iowa. Or you go to where Dubuque is. Yeah. It hadn't voted Republican since Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. And then somehow that we lost it. I think the feeling that the economy and the political system aren't really working for you um, in part leads to the same nativist that the University of Iowa study provided, right? That, that I think that he in part was the result, not the cause, mm-hmm. of folks saying things aren't working. Instead of doing what President Obama did is saying we can actually bring people up, yeah. he poured gasoline on that fire. What is a uh, what does a Trump bullock voter sound like? Because <laughs> they were like what tens of thousands of, yeah, of like, them, right, in Montana. Yeah, come to Montana sometime, and I'll show you, John. <laughs> uh, look, look, I, look. I think that many of them certainly uh, they don't agree with all my policy positions or everything that I stand for, but they right. thought that at the end of the day I was going to put them above the politics, and I'd be fighting for their education interests, their health care interests. There are and. I, I do show up. I don't just go to the pockets of blue. Now, I'm not, one of my favorite examples was from your old boss. You know, I'm not naive enough to say that you can just go door to door across America, right? <laughs> he but, wanted to. But I'll never forget. <laughs> so, so when he was running in the primary in 2008. I remember I was there with him, yeah. Were you there in Butte? Yes, I was. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Be- because that to me, so for if not everyone's followed all the saga of uh, Montana politics. We have a June primary. Mm-hmm. So I was in that three-way race for AG, and I got to the point where the Obamas and the Clintons were there so much I just worked the lines, and I'm like, I don't need to hear that yeah. again. So he wraps up the nomination, and come 4th of July. Could have been anywhere in this country. Could have been in Martha's Vineyard raising money. Could have been with his family somewhere. He took his family to Butte, America. I think it was Malia's birthday, too. It, it was, yeah. actually. <laughs> it was. And Butte is a town that at one time around the turn of the century, these wealthy copper barons basically controlled all of Montana through this, his largest open pit copper mine. And now it's the largest Superfund site. Now, on the one hand, there was zero electoral advantage for him to come to Butte. But it spoke to places like Butte all over this country that this guy gives a damn about me. Yeah. Uh, what is the first piece of legislation you'd want to pass as president? So the first thing I would get done is even by executive order, uh-huh. um, I would do, and I did this executive order in the state of Montana, is said that if you want to contract for s- services with the state, not even if you get it, I can't tell you not to spend in our system, mm-hmm. but you have to disclose every single dollar that you spend been trying to influence our elections. So that way, if nothing else in this post-Citizens United world, you're going to add transparency along the way. And think the federal government contracts with dang near every company in the world, Yeah, certainly in the United States. So at least we'd add the sunshine and transparency. I mean, I think sort of the HR1, like for so many of the issues that we're talking about and will be talked about through this primary and into the general election, 
until we address what's happened since Citizens United, until we address the fact now a billion dollars of undisclosed spending has even occurred since then, it's going to be that much harder to address anything else. It, would you consider passing HR1 as your first piece of legislation? Is that I know Elizabeth Warren said she's wanted to do that. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would do the executive order in a couple other executive actions along the way. I'd try to blow up the filibuster mm -hmm. when it came to legislation, both on some campaign finance or disclosure stuff. I think that we need to do some overall tax reform, and I think we got to start addressing climate. Um, on the on the money and politics thing, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren has sworn off sort of high dollar fundraisers as one way to sort of reduce the influence of money, at least on on her on her campaign. Would you consider something like that? What do you think about that? Well, I didn't start with like ten million bucks that I transferred over. You didn't have a big account that you, yeah. either. So, so no, like no corporate PACs, no super PACs. Are you taking money from lobbyists? I am taking money from anyone as long as it's disclosed. Disclosed, disclosed, fully disclosed. Yeah. Um, so you recently expanded Medicaid in Montana. It's about a hundred thousand people. We got it reauthorized. Interestingly, after so I started in twenty fifteen. Right. We were trying to reauthorize it by a ballot initiative. Tobacco companies spent $26 million killing it by at the initiative. So stripping health care away from 100,000 folks. Tobacco companies. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, but we did then. I got it reauthorized through my legislative session. Um, so I imagine if you become president, you know, you'll do everything you can, you know, with your executive power to sort of shore up the Affordable Care Act. What do you then do? for the other 30 million people oh, yeah. who still don't have health insurance right now. And in addition to that, all the people who, you know, even people who have Obamacare have said, you know, bought insurance on the, on the exchanges have said, my deductibles are too high. I can't yep. find a plan that I can really afford. So what do you do to cover the rest of the country and bring costs down? Yeah. And first of all, let's recognize that, you know, what, 70% of America is covered by employer-sponsored health insurance. Mm -hmm. And... By and large, they're happy with it. They're not always happy with the cost or the coverage. So we have to get to the point of both access and affordability for everyone. With access, I would do a public option. Mm -hmm. If you look at there's 25, 30 million people that aren't covered. So you could buy in, certainly. Um, you could also, if you could auto-enroll Medicaid expansion. Right. And we could get the rest of the states in the country to pass it, well, that'd be about 14 of the 10 million that have zero coverage. So automatic enrollment for everyone who qualifies for Medicaid that's for, not currently. For Medicaid eligible. And, you know, the idea that drug companies invest how much into our political system and we can't negotiate prescription drug costs, we pay more for drugs and healthcare right. than any country uh, in the world. And then I think you do have to, and you brought up this, the next piece of this is turning around and saying, out of network charges, surprise medical billing, how do we address that? How do we bring down overall costs? I mean, even with that legislature in Montana, right. we passed a reinsurance program, essentially a high risk pool. Mm -hmm. For folks uh, on the exchange, that should drop what they're paying, eight or 9%. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of this program, Medicare for America? This legislation that was that, that's been offered, and the and it would basically allow everyone to enroll automatically in Medicare, and it would allow employers to choose that. I mean, how do you? Because I know there's a like, how do you see the public option? How much 
how much would you have to pay in? Could you just enroll in a public option? How, yeah, how do you see I, that? the way I look at it, it would be something to compete against. So an individual that doesn't otherwise have insurance, you could go to the private market or you could turn around and buy into a public option, Medicare for all. Uh, you, you were just speaking about uh, how you had a lot of student loans when you're coming out of law school. Um, what do you think we should do about this enormous burden that, you know, student debt uh, is uh, facing so many people in this country? Yeah, when you look at student debt doubling in the last decade, yeah, yeah and I noted I had $175,000 in today's terms that I had to pay off. I mean, first, what I've done and then what I think that you could do. Mm-hmm. I've frozen college tuition six of the last eight years in Montana, and that's not by starving our universities. That's by investing more money at the state level into the system. If you look from the recession until today, 46 states have decreased their state investment in higher ed by almost 20%. Yeah. Montana's one of four that's increased, so we have the fourth lowest tuition and fees in the country. Student debt load ends up well over 10 grand less than the average for our country. So we have to make meaningful contributions at our level. Now, when you look at the literally, what, 100 and What's the overall student debt burden right out, yeah, out like there? Billions. <laughs> um, that I think that there are things that you can do without going down the absolute free college for all. Think about well, six- the free college is on the front end. But would you like you know Warren's got this proposal to wipe out the debt for something like ninety six percent of Americans yeah. pays for it with you know a wealth a tax. tax. The, what do you yeah. think about that? I think that there are things that you can do without wiping out the debt for. Everyone. And why don't you want to wipe out the debt? Why? Well, two things. One of which is that, like, yeah, in an ideal world, no one would have student debt. Right. But as long as, A, we could figure out how to pay for it, and let's also recognize that 68% of America doesn't have a college degree. Right. So how do you make it more affordable along the way? Now, 60 years ago in this country, we said, wouldn't it be great if employers sponsored and carried health insurance? So what did we do? We actually incentivized saying, employer, you can write off the cost of health yeah. coverage. And employee, you don't have to pay it taxes off of this. Yeah. Think about what we do for student loans. Now, if an employer turns around and says, John, I'm going to cover your student loans. I don't think it's business expensed. And then you as the employee have to pay taxes on it like this is a benefit. So we need yeah. to actually make it so, first, employers can cover part of it. If you look at it, we have 80 to 90% of all of the student loans out there are controlled by, owned by the federal government. Yeah. You could lower the points along the way. You could not dismantle the public service and loan repayment programs. I think there are a number of steps that you could do without just saying, all right, we're going to wipe all this away. Is there a solution on the federal level to sort of slow the rising cost of tuition? Because as you say, like as a governor, you can invest more in state education and freeze tuition like you did. But what I keep wondering what we do on the federal level, because otherwise it feels like we're just subsidizing no, loans yeah. in college and that yeah. costs a lot too. Yeah, and you, and you look at it, I mean, where the federal government's always been most effective, at least in the past, with um, when it comes to education and education funding is using its purse is sort of either the carrot or the stick, mm-hmm. right? 
uh, the Obama administration did more for publicly funded preschool by putting out opportunities for states to invest along the way. Yeah. Well, you look at what we've seen in the last two and a half years when it comes to tuition issues, that what uh, this administration's doing is essentially dismantling any consumer finance protection side of this, and the fly-by-nights will get more and more money along the way. I'm not sure that uh, other than using the power of your purse, you're going to be able to limit every public university from increasing costs on tuition. But we also got to recognize that it's got to be a partnership. Like, uh, I think that you could turn around and, and I think we should, a high school degree is no longer enough. Um, recognizing that what you could do is you could cover two-year college last dollars in at the federal level. Yeah. And at least for the tuition fees part, not the living expenses, it'd be relatively affordable. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. On immigration, um, what does enforcement look like in a Bullock administration? Who gets deported? Who gets detained? Who gets to stay? Yeah. And first, like, let's recognize that uh, this president has taken humanitarian issues and made it to try to divide people all the way across. There are some systemic things, like you have a broken bureaucracy when you have 400 judges in a caseload of almost 800,000, right? But you turn around and say that uh, as far as who gets to stay, the idea that individuals here and elsewhere have known no other country but ours and are now at risk of deportation, yeah, the dreamers, immediately we've got to figure out a way to take care of them. It's 3 million. Another 8 million folks 
undocumented immigrants. You know, two-thirds of them have lived in this country for over a decade. Yeah. And just even what we would get, you know, when you talk about here's how do we pay for things, just what we'd get for tax from actually getting them in a path to citizenship yeah. could be a meaningful, meaningful way along the way. Now, I don't um, – what was the rest? Who gets detained? I yeah, mean, I mean, I guess, I guess what I think is, you know, looking back at the Obama administration, we obviously wanted comprehensive immigration reform. We pushed for it very hard. We couldn't get it done. In the absence of comprehensive immigration reform, we had uh, a Department of Homeland Security and specifically ICE within Homeland Security that sort of – ran wild on its own, at least on the first term, and, you know, rounded up, deported a whole lot of people that probably shouldn't have been deported in this country who weren't dangerous criminals. By the end of the administration, we had the priorities changed a little bit. But, you know, I think there's been some interesting proposals in the field so far. Julian Castro said he would change it so that crossing the border illegally would be a civil infraction and not a criminal penalty anymore. Um, Beto has talked about from an executive standpoint, he would only deport the most dangerous criminals. Where do you come down well, on sort of what you do there? And, and what O'Rourke says, right, is that now you really do have sitting outside at the end of a plant gate shift as opposed to finding the most dangerous criminals. Right. I mean, this makes zero, zero sense. Yeah. I would still keep it a criminal infraction across the border. Right. And I think that it is. And, you know, some folks say, all right, got to get rid of ICE. Now, you've, as you know, you and the administration struggled with this for eight years, yeah. got the priorities, presumably, by the end of where you thought it was. I don't think it's about getting rid of ICE. I think it's about doing the reform to make sure that enforcement priorities are uh, the hard, are the bad criminals, not the right. individual that's just hanging out with their family trying to make a better life. Yeah. Um, so a growing number of Democratic presidential candidates, uh, as well as Nancy Pelosi, about 60 House Democrats now, uh, now support the creation of a commission that would develop reparation proposals and issue a formal apology to African-Americans in this country for slavery. Um, do you support that? You know, I support the concept of saying that there have been historical injustices that continue until today and they're having meaningful impacts in our communities. I mean, by definition, right, reparations is remedying past wrong by giving, providing assistance to those who've been wrong. Mm -hmm. And certainly the promise of this country for a lot of folks isn't, it hasn't ever been realized and it's been a different path than you or I ever had. Right. Where I take that is, well, if we know that an African-American family makes 58% of what a white family makes, yeah, part of that's historical, and that goes all the way to today. Mm-hmm. If you look at, um, in a separate context, like in my state, uh, the lifespan of a Native American is 20 years less someone else well we've got to address what's held us back along the way and i think that is where i'd go and say that there are systemic inequities today that it didn't just start today Uh, but that's probably different than a payment for every individual or something how would you address some of the systemic inequities um you know as you mentioned there's both uh, a a very large and growing wealth gap uh, between um, white 
Americans and other uh, Americans, and also, you know, infant mortality. It goes through all kinds oh, yeah. of economic issues, housing. There's also, of course, inequities in our justice system. How, how do you start approaching some of those inequities? Yeah, and it really is looking at each of the inequities and saying, what resources can we bring to bear? Mm -hmm. Like, even in a state like mine, we got eight or nine bills through with looked at sort of criminal justice reform. Yeah. If you look at health disparities, um, yeah, you know, an African-American woman is four times more likely to die in childbirth. Yeah. Or as far as uh, maternal care, prior to having a child, Hispanic families, substantially different access to care. Now, part of that's things like Medicaid. Part of that's availability along the way. Yeah. But I think for each of the issues, each of the sort of where there's systemic differences, we have to take them one by one and say, how do we meaningfully address either a community that's been wronged? Um, I want to talk about climate change. So uh, I know you've talked about rejoining the Paris Accords. I think aside from Paris, probably the most consequential step Obama took to reduce carbon pollution was his clean power plan. Um, obviously, power plants are the number one source of carbon pollution in the United States. When we first announced that plan, you said you were very disappointed in it. Um, why? So it was two different steps, right. right? So step number one came out and said, here's the Montana's mass reductions we need to do. Uh -huh. We actually went around the entire state and said, we can actually do this. Let's figure out how to. So we went to coal communities right. and others. And then when you rolled out the final rule, it actually doubled the mass, the, the reductions expected out of Montana. Yeah. So a, after working with EPA and others, said, look, you moved the goalposts on us right. along the way. I mean, I guess the question is, there's so many issues where you can say, all right, well, this is, as, this is as best as we can do, and we're compromising, and compromise is important. It's the only way to get things done. Climate is this issue where it's like, okay, we're given a, a deadline. we got to do something. Yep, <laughs> and absolutely. And so it's almost like the usual politics of compromise and let's do a bit here and a bit there seem like they don't quite fit we can't with the do magnitude that anymore. of the moment. We cannot do that yeah. anymore. And, and I look at, yeah, I had 1.3 million acres burned two years ago. Yeah. What do, you fire think, what, do you seasons, think we, what do you think we should do? Fire seasons are 78 days longer now than it was 30 years ago. So I do think that you turn around and say, right, IPCC says we've got to be at net zero by 2050. Yeah. I think we can do it a lot sooner, 2040 or earlier. Certainly, yeah, some of the easy steps is not only rejoining Paris, but also funding our commitments along the way. Not even the auto industry was asking for repeal of the fuel efficiency standards. Right. You know, they were along the path. Looking at probably the most antiquated piece of machinery that we have in this country is the electrical grid. Mm, yeah. Because it's really been cobbled together. So investments along the way into that to make more both wind and solar available. Investing in technology as we get battery storage along the way. Energy conservation. I mean, that's about 30% of what you could change just by hiring people to make things better, more efficient along the way. So I think that we need to take... Do you think we need a, a price on carbon? I think that that should certainly be on the table. Mm -hmm. I think that could be part of it. Think about, though, and it, it's funny as you say, like, no, well, not funny, it's tragic. 
you know, think back to f- the first George Bush. Yeah. So he said as president, we got to address the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Yeah. I mean, as a Republican president, I am going to lead from the White House. Now a Republican can't even acknowledge climate change is human cause because of what outside spending's done. So I think that this is a crisis that we have to address, and we have to take it seriously, not only our role, but our role in an international leadership perspective, because we can't do it alone. It makes no sense that, yes, China's emitting twice as much as we are when it comes to um, greenhouse gas, but they're also investing a lot more into even the science and technology and opportunities yeah. uh, for what a net zero um, economy can look like. Your old Secretary Vilsack, Tom Vilsack, yeah. uh, he said, I can get the whole dairy industry to net zero, but they can't do it alone. There has to be federal investment along the way. Uh, I know you've only been in the race for a month. Are you going to come up with like a big climate plan that's all detailed or what, what's your thoughts on that? We will. Yeah, we will. Um, you think Donald Trump deserves to be impeached? As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I'm Oren Siegel, and I've been fighting extremism, anti-Semitism, and hate for more than 20 years. You should subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, to get a unique perspective on the daily work and the people who have dedicated their lives to exposing, fighting, and disrupting extremism, anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate. We bring you the stories of people and communities not only impacted by hate, but who offer new perspectives and ways to push back. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 anyone, I, anyone who casually listens you to this pod, that's what I yeah, think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, look, I think it, it's a moving target. I mean, from the perspective of what he is normalizing and what this administration is normalizing is absolutely, uh, it's dangerous for the institutions that we have. And we shouldn't just take this sitting down. Yeah. Um, where I say it's a moving target, and I know that you don't think, well, these investigations may not be the way. Now, there is a constitutional obligation of oversight from Congress. And I'll be darned if the executive branch doesn't have a constitutional obligation to respond to that. Right. So that's where, from my perspective, if it continues to stonewall on every investigation, um, then I think we have to look at it. So that's why I say it's a moving target. It's also interesting, though, because you say, you know, you don't want this election to be a referendum on Donald Trump. Yeah. Now I'm interviewing you. Do you think this election should be a referendum on Donald Trump? I mean, look, I I actually think that in this election we do 
have to offer people a choice, right? Like, I think it's insufficient to just bash Trump from now until Election Day. But I also think because we are in a media environment where that man can grab the microphone and command so much attention that it's always going to be about Trump. 2018, yeah, our candidates talked about health care all the time. All the ads were about health care. But opposition to Donald Trump drove that vote. Right. I mean, that's what people wanted a check on Donald Trump in 2018. Healthcare was part of that. Right. Because well, I think if Donald, they were about to lose their they were about to lose their health care. Right. I mean, he's trying to strip it away. But I think it's just it's it's always it to some extent, especially when there's an incumbent running for reelection. This was the case when we ran against George W. Bush. This was the case yeah, uh, when Mitt Romney ran against Obama. He tried to make it a referendum on Obama. Um, it's always it's a, the the it's gravitates towards a referendum on the president. Um, so I just think I mean, I guess, though, my question was. You know, oh, they're, I don't. They're, I don't get to ask you questions. No, you can ask. Her, have, but yeah. <laughs> I think there's a there's a there's an honest debate to be had whether the House should move forward and actually go do this. But I'm wondering if you having have you read the Mueller report? Read most of it. Okay, skimmed it. Do you think reading that and knowing what you know publicly that he deserves impeachment, whether they go down that path or not, whether it's wise to go down that path or not? I think reading the first half, and I mean, we should have a real acknowledgement that right. A foreign government interfered and invaded our country. Right. And to allow the normalization of him standing next to Putin and say, I take him at his word, uh, is pretty damn problematic for looking backward. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's problematic. Also, it's also what we look at going forward. Yeah. Now, you look at here are the number of issues that were brought out in the second half of it. Mm -hmm. And whether that would be cause for impeachment, I think that's anybody's yeah. bet or it's anybody's discussion to have. But but if you can't even if Congress can't fulfill its oversight duty along the way of saying, all right, I want to unpack some of these suitcases that was brought up in this Mueller report yeah. and other things, then I think that's where you would get to the point where you have to impeach. Now, I would turn around and say, and in all, so last the week four last. Seven meet and greets or town halls throughout Iowa. No one's asking about it. People talked about their health care. Right. They talked about um, what these tariffs are doing. They, this isn't what their discussion was. Right. And I think that there is the potential for turning around and by moving for impeachment as the Senate locks up. Like, hopefully what would happen, right, is additional information comes out that gets any sane person to say, for the sake of our representative democracy, we got to do something about it. Right. But I would so much rather have the next year and a half talking about the fact that the guy who will clean up the studio tonight paid more in taxes than 60 Fortune 500 companies last yeah. year, or we're now 50 years the lowest corporate tax collection ever in the last 50 years, what, or a trillion dollars of stock buybacks didn't go to me. What do you want to do about taxes? Would you repeal all of the Trump tax cuts? I would do, um, look, even the corporations weren't asking for 21%, right? right? And, th and then add on to that where, you know, when you have 60 companies that not only didn't pay taxes, that they got uh, credits. I think you could look at a 28% and still be competitive and close loopholes mm -hmm. and turn around, especially on the first top four brackets uh take it up another three points okay. you'd make some good money mm -hmm. and i think at some point you know somebody that uh again that cleans this place 
when they're getting taxed at a higher rate than somebody living off their trust fund, when you look at the passive income, yeah. we've got to, it should be taxes, ordinary income. Um, so the Trump administration is now arguing, or at least it's reported that they're arguing behind closed doors, that the 2001 authorization for use of military force um, that Congress passed after 9-11 for Afghanistan gives them the authority to go to war in Iran, potentially. Do you agree that the AUMF gives them the authority <laughs> to go to uh, war in Iran? You know, uh, so to tell you the truth, John, I haven't read the AUMF lately. Right. But <laughs> the idea that they're going to turn around and say, now we have the authority to yeah. go to war in Iran. Do you think it should be repealed? The, I mean, the, the House Democrats voted today to actually repeal the AUMF because they said that we need a new one. Do you? Do you I, to be candid, yeah. I, sh I should sure. look into it sure. more. But but even look at like, right? America first has become America alone. Yeah. And this Trump reflex seems to be we're going to treat our allies as adversaries and our adversaries as allies. If you look, what's happening with Iran is of his own making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've said we need to campaign and legislate like our kids are watching. What do you mean by that? I, and I've shared the story. So when I got elected, uh, my kids were six, eight, and 10. Mm -hmm. It had been 40 years since kids that age had been living in the Montana governor's residence. I'll never forget my son moves in, we kicks a soccer ball, and somebody goes, you know, that painting's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm like, get rid of the damn paintings, yeah. then, right? Because we have to live here. And first day of the state, uh, I said, you're going to hear different sounds from both the governor's residence and my office. And it'll be the sounds of children's laughter and that our kids learn from our words and our deeds. Yeah. And we as leaders have an obligation to act like our kids are watching because they are. So what does that mean both in how I present myself and in a way that now that I have teenage daughters, I embarrass them no matter what I do. But there's got to be ways to call out honestly, be honest and call out the BS when it's there, but do it in a way that elevates the system, not further tears it down. Yeah. And I mean, what we've seen, and that's this is where you started this interview, like what got you into this? I mean... The lies, the misstatements, the dividing us by race, gender, geography, the temper tantrums. And it is no exaggeration to say we now expect more out of our preschoolers than we do of our president. Yeah. And that's causing further and further divisions in this country. I can be, in Montana, the legislators that I work with, I can fundamentally, philosophically disagree with them. But that doesn't mean that I don't have some obligation to show them respect. Um, what's your best uh, bad dad joke? I know you're known for them. <laughs> They're all good dad jokes, John. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the, I mean, that, that's that, the trick. It was a yeah, trick question. Yeah, so, all the dad jokes are actually so, good. So dad during my launch, I was asked that as one of the questions. And maybe what's... Uh, what does the mama buffalo say to the baby buffalo when you're dropping off at school? Bye, son. Um, what are the uh, two different sections of a Montana library? Have you heard this one? <laughs> no. Fission and non-fission. 
fission and non-fission. That is what a uh, someone who was in the office today who knew you were coming say, I have a great dad joke that's Montana related. Fission and non-fission. Please pass this on to <laughs> And so I did. Well, I appreciate that, John. Uh, Governor Bullock, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, and uh, good luck on the trail. Thanks for having me. Today, All right, John. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.